0: I'm Kate Daniels. One of the biggest travesties of our recent history in this country is the high rate of incarceration. And then it's the disproportionate number of black men who find themselves behind bars. In his early work in the court, James began questioning the activities that he witnessed. The result is an important book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. So let's get right to this important conversation. James Foreman, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Thank you. And even more than that, thank you for the very important and great work that you are doing in our world most recently with this new book that's come out, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. Uh, Timely, of course, it's that uh, important beyond that because you have really done an incredible service in giving a great historical perspective
1: here. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: And you're looking at the past, and the past isn't really so distant. We're talking about just decades since uh, essentially the 1960s uh, to current time. What happened to cause this atrocious problem that we have existing in our society with uh, the huge incarceration of young black men?
1: Yeah, I, I started as a public defender in the 1990s. And I had taken the job because, uh, in my view, it was the civil rights issue for my generation. My parents were in the civil rights movement. They were both in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the 1960s. My dad was the executive secretary of the organization, and my mom was also uh, uh, involved. And their generation did so much to create opportunities for... An, a, another generation, my generation of of African Americans, we had chances that that were unheard of for for my father's generation. So, I got to clerk on the Supreme Court, and I was a law clerk for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. But when I looked out at the world, I also saw some very disturbing statistics. By the early 1990s, we knew that one in three young black men was under supervision of the criminal justice supervision. Um, And uh, black women as well were um, getting brought in at higher and higher rates. And the United States in the early 90s for the first time passed Russia and South Africa to become the world's largest jailer. Um, By then, by the mid-90s, we had the number that that people often report today, which is still accurate, which is that we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. And I don't think we're the world's worst people. So then that means something must be going wrong in our criminal justice system. So I took the job as a public defender because I wanted to make a contribution to that issue. And when I got to Washington, D.C., one of the things that I saw that was remarkable and dramatic and eye-opening for me was Washington, D.C. is a city that has a substantial African-American population population. Um, not just among people who are getting charged with crimes, but also people who are involved in running and operating the criminal justice system. So one case that I write about in the book involves a young man named Brandon. Brandon was charged with possession of a gun and possession of about $20 worth of marijuana, and he had pled guilty, and now we were there for sentencing. He was 15 years old, and I was asking for him to be released, to to get probation, His parents and his mom and grandmother were there in court. I had letters from some teachers and counselors at his school attesting to his character. And the prosecutor, African-American, was asking for him to be locked up. She wanted him to go to Oak Hill, which is D.C.'s juvenile prison at the time. And it was a really terrible place, really a dungeon with no counseling, no mental health services, no school, no job training, rampant violence, drugs everywhere. It was a terrible place. And the judge had to make the decision. And the judge, also African-American, I had been in front of him many times before, and I knew the speech that he gave, and he leaned back and he leaned forward and he looked into Brandon and he said, son, Mr. Foreman has been telling me that you've had a hard life and that you deserve a second chance. Well, let me tell you, son, about how things were once upon a time. Let me tell you about Jim Crow. He said, let me tell you about segregation, how I grew up. And then he he said, people marched and fought and died for your freedom, son. Martin Luther King fought and died for you. And he didn't die for you to be out here running and gunning and thugging and carrying on and carrying a gun and embarrassing your community and embarrassing your family. So maybe you will turn your life around the way Mr. Foreman says. I hope that you do. But right now, actions have consequences, and your consequence is to go to Oak Hill. And... Ever since that day, as I thought about the fact that the judge, uh, Judge Walker, he wasn't alone. He wasn't the only one. The city council that had passed the laws, the gun and the drug laws that Brandon was being sentenced under, it was a majority black uh, city council. The police chief and the majority of the police officers in the city were African-American. And I realized that the story of mass incarceration and of how we came to have such a um, punitive criminal justice system that, was also a story. needed to be investigated. What were happening with African American decision makers during this 40 and 50 year period? Because not everybody was like the judge, right? Some people were like me. Some people were standing and fighting for the Brandons of the world. Um, But some people had another view. And what was their view? And why did they come to that conclusion? And what pressures were they under? And that was the story I wanted to go back over the last 40 and 50 years and really try to explore in a complicated and nuanced and empathetic way the positions of people, many of whom I disagreed with, but I really under- wanted to know where they were coming from. And so that's that's the book that I set out to write.
0: And. What an important, as I said earlier, an incredible book this is. And as you just spoke, James, I'm thinking of that as being this big invitation. We'll say right at the outset you get to learn more because James Foreman is coming to our Seattle area. And that's uh, just about a week and a half away on May 16th. He's going to be here at town hall, just a a really important venue for people to gather, have important conversations and learn a lot. So uh, that's what I feel, James, you were just giving us this big invitation.
1: Yeah, thank you. No, I'm really looking forward to, um, I'm really looking forward to coming to Seattle. Whenever I come to Seattle, uh, I have a great, great time and I have great conversations. It's a, it's a community where um, the region where people are, you know, people read books and people want to have important conversations. And, and my dad, I, I haven't yet figured this out, but every time I come to Seattle, I meet people who knew my father and who were involved in SNCC or hosted him. Um, and I haven't yet tracked it down. He must have done some work in Seattle, at least some talks and some visits, because you know when you I, I travel and I do speaking around the country, and it's a city more than except for the south. When I go to the south, there's, but except for the south and D.C., other than those places, Seattle, which I wouldn't have thought, but Seattle is a city where I keep running into people who are who are like I know, I remember when. I knew your dad. I was doing this in the movement. I was doing this in SNCC. I heard him speak. He came to my church. Um, So I really, it's it's one of my favorite places in America to to, to spend time.
0: And you're right. There is a lot of activism. There's a lot of
1: the website address, and I can just say com, and
0: you can kind ...the right thing. And what I feel we have an opportunity with here in locking up our own is having this important historical perspective, because we always seem to have maybe just a piece of what has gone on. Here, I think we're getting a, a better opportunity at the the whole big picture.
1: You know, that's 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 my goal. You know, one of the so when I went back and I looked at, you know, records of the last 40 or 50 years, one of the things that I saw was how crime and violence and addiction, especially in the late 1960s. And then again, in the crack cocaine years of the of the 1980s, what a devastating impact it had on African-American communities in D.C., the homicide rate tripled in the 1960s. Nationally, it doubled. Uh, and, and addiction, heroin. You know, everyone remembers crack, but heroin was the drug of the 1960s that was so devastating. In DC, in the early 1960s, they tested everyone who was entering the DC jail before they entered, and 3% of the people tested positive for heroin. By 1968, it was 45%. You know, and that's an epidemic. And it wasn't just the numbers, but I would go and I would look at letters that were written to City Council members um, from citizens, and people were saying, you know, I don't recognize my city anymore. I don't feel safe. I feel like a prisoner in my own home. I feel like a stranger on my own streets. I can't go outside. I'm afraid to walk my children to school. You have to do something. You have to do something. And the kind of the urgency of the pleas was, you know, something that, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't expecting. I wasn't prepared for the pain that leapt off the pages. And another thing you said that I think is really important, you you said in terms of, of telling the whole story, you know, the complete story, I feel like we have, we have now really kind of magnificent books that have been written about the criminal justice system. You know, ta Coates has written a powerful book, and Brian Stevenson, the uh, Alabama death penalty lawyer, has written an amazing book, and Michelle Alexander's book has become kind of household reading. And these, these are hugely important, and they've influenced my thinking. In major, major ways, um, and it was also clear to me after reading all of this that there was a piece of the story that that still hadn't been told. You know, the piece of the story of African American decision makers. Um, and because, you know, I'm that person. I don't know if I don't know if you're like this or any of your listeners are like this, but I'm the person who, when I go to a movie, and when the movie's over if there were no black characters in the movie and somebody says, how did you like that movie? I'm the person who's always like, well, where were the black characters? You know, I want to see them in movies and us in movies and in film and in, in theater. And, and I feel that way about history and about law as well. So, so I knew that I wanted to write a book that had those judges and prosecutors and police officers, um, mayors, probation officers, and really told the story of kind of their struggles and how they tried to respond to that rising crime and that rising addiction, you know, that I mentioned.
0: And I guess in that way, we are privileged to have you look at it that way. And I have to say that that part of it is rather shocking to me. I would not have expected that. But I think the intent originally their hearts, if you will, were in the right place thinking, well, if we get tough on this, it's really going to change things. But sadly, it just kind of went, it derailed.
1: You know, I think that's right. And and I, I'm glad you mentioned about kind of their hearts and their intent, because that is one of the complicated pieces of the story, right? When I was originally in court with that judge that I described, I was very angry at him, not just for locking up Brandon, But also for kind of invoking Martin Luther King um, in service of that, and I remember thinking, you know, what's wrong with him? How can he? How can he not see um, what's what's happening here? And so part of my story is is about getting in those right, getting getting in people like the, the, the shoes of that judge and trying to look at the world through his perspective. One of the things that I really saw going back to the 1970s, is exactly what you said, is kind of the good faith. So I'll give you an example. The first, I know that in you know, Washington State, um, marijuana was recently legalized, and, and it was decriminalized in Washington, D.C. as well a couple of years ago. But in 1975, the first majority African-American city council was elected. 11 of 13 members, African-American and they debated in their first year of existence they debated whether to decriminalize marijuana now given what we know today of the impact that marijuana criminalization has had on all americans but especially on african-americans you would have thought well of course they would have tried to do something to to, to sort of stop the war on drugs before it even got going um, but they and it was a close vote and there were people who were making these arguments but it lost and the story of why it lost, I think, is a fascinating insight into what you were saying about, kind of, about good hearts and best intentions. The opposition to marijuana decriminalization mainly came from a coalition of African-American ministers, and the black church was very, still powerful, but even more powerful as a political force then, and a black nationalist city council member and also a minister himself, a guy by the name of Doug Moore. The amazing thing to me is that these characters, they were not, they cared about the black community. These weren't Uncle Tom type characters. These were race men and women. And they said, listen, America is racist. And our kids, our black children, we don't have the same margin for error that wealthier kids, that white kids, that suburban kids, middle class kids might have. We don't have access to residential drug treatment if our kid becomes an addict. They just become an addict. We don't, have, we don't have the political power to go to school or to go to the police station if the kid gets busted and make sure that it works out okay for them. So our kids have to be twice as good. There's always been this sense you know, in the African-American community that up against racism, we have to be twice as good to survive. But here, that idea was turned into public policy. Because they said, you know, our kids have to be twice as good, twice as clean to be able to survive. And so we don't want to send a message to them that it's okay to get high. And decriminalizing, they thought, would send that message. And then you add to that, remember, this is coming right off the tail end of the heroin years, which I had talked about earlier. And in that era, you had people like the baseball great Jackie Robinson, whose son had become a heroin addict, and Jackie Robinson was going around to black churches and town halls and meetings and civic organizations and saying, don't decriminalize marijuana because my son, Jackie Jr., is a heroin addict and he started with marijuana. It's a gateway drug, and now that, in many ways that's been disproven, but, but it was a belief at the time. So you have these black ministers and this black city council member who are acting out of love and concern, but they end up making a decision that has all of these damaging effects. And that is connected to one of the other arguments in the book, which is that we have to look at, you know, sometimes there's a temptation when we look at something like mass incarceration, 2.2 million people in prison, 7 million people under criminal justice supervision. There's a temptation to look at it as like, um, you know, something that there was like a decision to do this thing, to have mass incarceration. But, of course, it wasn't built like that. It was built with a series of tiny steps by various different actors, right, police, prosecutors, probation officers, judges, legislators, across 50 states and D.C., across 3,000 counties, right, thousands of cities. And what happened was people were responding to crises in the moment. They were all getting tougher somewhat. And it, it. what happens is if everyone gets tougher and everyone gets harsher, over a 40 or 50 year period, the criminal justice apparatus just ramps up and you get a, this now thing, this human rights crisis that is over incarceration or mass incarceration. But it was this series of tiny, discreet steps that led us here. Not There was never up or down vote. There was never a vote, hey, you know, do we want to be the world's largest jailer? Do we want to lock up more people in South Africa and Russia? Right, that was never presented. Um, instead, it was these tiny little micro decisions, these micro acts that kind of led to this. And that ultimately, and I hope we get a chance to talk about this. I know I'm planning on talking about this when I get to town hall. Ultimately, getting out, right, responding to this problem of mass incarceration is going to require all of these micro acts in response. And to me, that's ultimately an optimistic story in terms of solutions, because if it's, a, if it's going to take thousands of small steps by all of us to respond, then that gives all of us a role to respond. It gives us all something that we can do in response.
0: Exactly. And so that's so positive that we can do that spin. It's not just that, you know, just kind of painting it fun colors and saying, oh, all's going to be good. But if we can each find and and really each of us has some kind of gift that can be part of these micro changes. Don't think that we have to make like a grandstand change. That's not going to happen. As you said, it didn't happen to create the, the serious problem we have today.
1: That's exactly right. So, and there's so many examples of things that we can do. So um, the Ford Foundation, right? They do amazing work on criminal justice reform nationally and worldwide. And um, some months ago, they did a visit to the Ford Foundation, did a visit, including their head, this very visionary progressive guy by the name of Darren Walker, and they visited a prison in New York State. And they were presenting on what they did at the Ford Foundation on Criminal Justice. And at the end of the meeting, one of the guys who was incarcerated raised his hand and said, I really appreciate y'all pre- your presentation, but I'm just curious. Can I get hired at the Ford Foundation when I get out? And there was silence in the room. The answer, they didn't know the answer. Most people don't know the answer. The answer. But this is to the credit of the Ford Foundation and Darren Walker. They went back and they scrubbed their HR policy from top to bottom, and they looked at, at all the various ways in which the exclusions, many of them irrational, and the ways in which they discourage people um, in the application process from even applying for a job if they have a criminal record. Well, all of us, almost all of us, is either an employer... We might run a company or we're an employee, right? We're part of a company. So we need to all be doing in our employment what the Ford Foundation did and ask, what are our job applications look like? Are we using best practices or are we discouraging people up front from even applying if they have a criminal record? And go further than that, what kind of outreach are we doing? To com- what, what kind of affirmative efforts are we taking to try to go to communities look for people who have been incarcerated are out or have convictions have potential there's incredible wasted potential in our prison system have potential and actually try to affirmatively hire those people so that's just you know one example same thing for universities right universities there's a range of practices some universities are very welcoming of people who have been convicted of a crime and others are very unwelcoming Well, if you're a professor or you're an administrator, find out what your university's practices are and work inside that university to change them so that you're sending a message to people that, hey, we welcome you. We don't view a criminal conviction as disqualifying to attend our university and affirmatively put that message out there because, you know, we've stigmatized people with criminal records for so long that people assume now. That they can't. Sometimes they can get things, and they don't even know it, because they assume, oh, well, they're never, you know, they're never going to let me in their university. So if if our policies are more progressive, we also have to publicize those. Another example that's really important to me is our religious communities. So you know, one of the biggest problems that we have now is reentry, right? People leave a facility, they leave a prison, they leave a jail. And the rates of recidivism are high because it's incredibly hard to reconnect to life it's people don't have necessarily have networks they don't know how to access jobs they don't know how to get into housing sometimes it's just people don't have can't get a license you know if you can't get a license or an ID then you can't do anything um, in our society and sometimes it's just the the fee, the $20 fee, and people say, well, $20, come on, you can get a license. Well, if you don't have, if you have $0, $20 might as well be a million dollars. You don't have it. And so there are all these little barriers that people don't see. To, but here's the thing. We have 300,000 religious institutions in this country, churches, mosques, temples, synagogues, etc. We have 900,000 people coming out of facilities every year. That means that if every every religious community adopted just three people, just three people coming back to your community, your neighborhood, your city, and said, we are going to be that base, that foundation. We are going to help you reconnect to civic life, to political life, to jobs, to housing. We're going to welcome you into our arms and help you survive. We would do a huge amount to solve the problem of reentry. And let me just give one more example, because this one's kind of, you know, personal, close to home for me. I was going around and giving talks and, you know, saying, here's what you can do and here's what you can do. And I started to think about the fact that I'm a professor at a very elite institution. What am I doing through my teaching? I got trained in a program called Inside Out, which is run out of Temple University, and I recommend everyone check it out, they train professors to teach classes inside prisons and jails. And the class is made up of half men and women who are incarcerated and half students from your university. They could be undergraduates, they could be grad students, and in all different subjects, art, English, literature, math, science, you name it. Anything a university offers can be offered inside a prison. So I took my class, Race, Class, and Punishment, and went inside a Connecticut prison and taught the same seminar that I used to teach at Yale Law School, but this time I taught it inside the prison to 10 students who were incarcerated and 10 students from the law school, all learning together around a seminar table. It was the most meaningful teaching that I've ever done, by far. At the end of the semester, one of the students who was incarcerated in the evaluation, he wrote, you know, I like the subject matter. I liked what I what I was taught about the law, but really what meant most to me was the fact that people sat around in a seminar setting and wanted to know what I thought. No one ever has wanted to know what I thought, right? And that, you know, we just take that for granted. I take it for granted that my child, you know, I'm raising my child. We always want to know what he thinks, right? He grows up in a in a world where he's nurtured and he's told that his views and his intellect are valuable. But if that hasn't happened to you, then that can be powerful and that can be transformative. Another student said, the thing that was most important to me about this class was that for two hours a week, I got to forget that I was in prison. You know, Just think about that. Just think about what what that means for somebody to be able to mentally escape from that state of incarceration for two hours a week—the kind of freedom and the liberation and the potential for a transformative future that 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 brings with it. So, anybody who's a professor can do this. So, that, this is one of the things that I'm really kind of asking people to think about: is not just public policy, which is hugely important, and we can you know we can talk about that too. Um, and will at town hall. But also are individual things that we can do in groups, in communities, in our places of employment, um to to help to respond to this crisis that that we've all created. We've created it collectively as a society, and we have to undo it collectively.
0: This is nothing beyond uh, hopeful and so empowering. Uh, The fact that, yes, there is something I can do. Policy can feel nebulous to many of us, but these concrete ways that each of us will find at least one, if not more than one way to become involved, you have given us an incredible gift, James. And just the way you present both in your book and this morning is in such a really comprehensive and understandable way that we just owe you such a debt of gratitude.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: And so the invitation is here pick up your copy of the book. This is fresh and new, locking up our own crime and punishment in black America. It is something that is for each and every one of us who are citizens of this country or aspiring citizens of this country. And it is really a way that we can become active and make change. And of course, the invitation is to come to town hall on Tuesday, May 16th, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I've heard from a number of people that there's going to be a really great turnout. There are some folks that I know from the public defender community that are going to be there, a number of of racial justice advocates. I know that there are going to be some elected officials that have contacted me that said they're interested in coming and joining in the discussion. So I will open the discussion by talking about the book, but ultimately, I want to use this space in the question and answer period to have a discussion as a group about what are some of the things that the that community members think that they can do and want to do kind of going forward. So I think it's going to be an exciting evening.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so James, it would be great to give people your web address as well, the source of so much information.
1: Absolutely. It's jamesformanjr.com. And that's J-A-M-E-S-F-O-R-M-A-N-J-R.com.